This is episode number 62, How Mental Fatigue Affects Athletic Performance with Dr. Walter Stiano. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of sports science, mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help give you the tools to be better every single day. In any given power, there is the same. When they are mentally tired, and you ask them the perception of effort on this scale from zero to 10, they rate you, it's more effortful. If you sleep deprived, or you're mentally tired, I ask you to go up to the first floor through the stairs. I tell you how effortful it was, and you point on the scale that is more effortful compared to when you're fresh. It's the same concept. So now imagine, if your perception of effort goes lower, your performance automatically gives a boost up. And the other way around, if your perception of effort is higher because you are mentally tired or you are in a bad mood, because this is the same, basically your performance will decrease. I'm so thankful that you're here today sharing your time with me, and I'm also really excited about today's guest. Dr. Walter Stiano. After reading Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, and doing a little bit of my own research on mental fatigue and performance, I needed to know more. Personally, this year, I have been struggling with fatigue despite one of my lowest training loads. I learned it was due to the mental fatigue of all the other inputs of the projects I take on. Rest also means resting your brain. And after talking to Alex Hutchinson in the podcast that we recorded about his book Endure and also some other amazing guests, I've learned a lot about rest. And previously, I thought a rest day meant just not riding your bike and not exercising. But rest also means resting your mind. And I am not very good at that. It's something that I really need to work on. And by talking to some of these guests, it helps me get motivated to start doing more of that. The real question is, what constitutes actually resting your body and your mind? How do you know if your fatigue is from the body or from the mind? Dr. Stiano and I got to the bottom of a lot of my questions, which I think will also be really applicable to you. The most exciting part is that the research in mental fatigue is still pretty young, and in the next several years, there'll be a lot of great tools we can use. And on the flip side of mental fatigue is mental endurance. And there is a lot of cool studies and research that Dr. Stiano has been working on to help improve your mental endurance. So if your brain isn't as engaged as it needs to be, then there's a lot of different things you can do to work on that. And having a strong mind also translates to better performance. It's just about finding the right balance between mental stimulation and physical training to have optimized performance. Dr. Stiano has spent nearly 20 years in sports science and performance, working in many research labs around the globe, like in Australia, the UK, and Spain. He has worked closely and created long-lasting collaborations with several sport institutions. Dr. Walter has supported and advised a number of coaches, military personnel, and elite athletes preparing for world championship events and the Olympic Games across multiple sports. Dr. Sano's research in the last few years has been highly ranked for its innovative elements and multidisciplinary approach, as well as for its strong impact on elite sport performance. His passion is integrating evidence-based and experience-based domains, and it has been a successful formula. 
a lot of times things will work in the lab, but then whenever you get outside, they don't work as planned. And I definitely have experience with that as a graduate electrical engineering student. And it's really an amazing thing whenever you see things working outside as well, whenever you can't control every single variable. With the sole purpose to help athletes go beyond their limits and capabilities, he has been wearing many hats, physiologist, psychologist, neuroscientist, coach, and sport consultant, providing an almost unlimited perspective. The guy is a human encyclopedia and a deep well of knowledge. I'm so thankful that I got to meet him and have this conversation, and I'm sure that I will be referring back to him in the future with more questions. Some things you're going to learn in this podcast is what is mental fatigue, the biomarkers of fatigue, and how to know if you are tired, how to train your brain, does brain training affect athletic performance, mindfulness protocols for brain training and mental endurance, how to rest your mind, perception of effort versus pain, and a little random thing that I found in some of his other research, how to use heat acclimatization to prepare for your next event. A few little housekeeping items before we get into it. I just want to say thank you so much again for listening. And if you're enjoying the show, make sure that you subscribe and you hit the five-star review. The reviews really help us out a lot and are much appreciated. And big thanks to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon for as little as four bucks a month. I really, really appreciate that. It really does help for the growth of the show. And I do this because I love it. So thank you so much. And I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Four Sigmatic. I'm actually sipping on a Rishi Mushroom Elixir Mix right now because it's kind of late and I spent some time today doing some fun things, so now I'm getting caught up on work. So I need to use this to help me wind down for bedtime. And it's been pretty cool trying out a bunch of the Four Sigmatic products. They're all mushroom products. They make mushroom coffees, hot cocos, and elixirs. They even make some superfood blends. Some mushrooms have incredible health-promoting benefits, like helping with sleep, immunity, energy management, and focus. And mushrooms have been used in Chinese medicine for a very, very long time. Sometimes people are a little bit confused about mushrooms. They think that you put them on a pizza or they laugh and think that they're a psychedelic, but they can really be used as a medicinal and as an adaptogen in your life. And I really think that they do make a difference. An awesome thing is that we have a discount code for friends of the podcast. So for 15% off your next Four Sigmatic order on their website, enter my name, Sonia Looney, that's S-O-N-Y-A-L-O-O-N-E-Y, or you can go to foursigmatic.com slash Sonia, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash Sonia. And you can try anything you want on there. And I really think the chaga is my favorite at this time and the coffees. If you're not familiar with medicinal mushrooms, go to Google and give it a search. I think you'll find some really interesting things. Or if you really want to learn more and geek out, which I am in the middle of doing, you can go and take the Mushroom Academy for free on the Four Sigmatic website. They also have a great blog that has a lot of different health tips that isn't just about mushrooms that I've been enjoying as well. And speaking of health, if you want to surround yourself with awesome people who want more healthy habits and sharing good food and recipes and motivation, you are invited to join the Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. It's free. Anybody can join. You do not have to eat a plant-based diet. 
You only have to be plant curious or even just want to eat a little bit of plants. It's basically just a community page that I've created where we can all just be there and share ideas. And I really enjoy going on there because people are doing cool things in their lives. And if you've learned anything from any of my shows, one of the most important things is surrounding yourself with people who you want to be like and who help support your goals and who are positive. And the Plant Power Tribe is a starting point for that. So you can go to Facebook and search Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney or just go to facebook.com slash group slash Plant Power Tribe and submit a request and we will approve you. All right, let's get down to business with Dr. Walter Stiano. Cool. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stiano. Hi, Sonia. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, it's so That's funny. So <laughs> it's morning here, but it's nighttime there. Yeah, well, not nighttime. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. The sun still shines outside. It's very warm. And you're still really far away from dinner. I, I remember in Spain, everybody eats dinner really late. Oh, no, yes. I can tell you that uh, I had lunch two hours ago. So the, <laughs> that might give you an idea. Yeah, I, I've done a six-day race a couple of times in Andalusia. And you have to go out for dinner every night. And the race starts early in the morning. And the first year I went, I didn't realize what time people eat dinner. So we would show up at 9 o'clock for dinner and be the only people in the restaurant. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, 9 is still good. Let's say. <laughs> I would expect in no one if you were showing up at seven. Actually, no, at seven, I would expect the restaurant to be closed. Yeah, they are closed. I found that out. We we're like, what the heck? It's closed. It's seven o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, that's you. So I'm really interested in your research. So I found out about you through Alex Hutchinson, who was a previous podcast guest about his book, Endure. And I sent him an email saying I would really love to learn more about mental fatigue and talk to one, some of the leading researchers about that topic. And he recommended you. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Alex. Um, no, so basically, all started when I was a master's student in uh, University of Bangor, UK. And uh, along with my supervisor, Professor Marcora, which is also like a famous name in mental fatigue, we decided to do a study to prove that the effect of mental fatigue in terms of cognitive process might have actually an effect on the physical performance. So this was one of the first, actually this was the first study that, that we did and it gathered a lot of uh, interest, actually become like, very famous. And after this one, like uh, our research group, actually my supervisor research group altogether, we were starting like uh, studying more in depth uh, the effect on mental fatigue. And it's funny because when you define the mental fatigue, I mean, if you do it from a research purposes, you need to pull out some very complex definition, like we define mental fatigue like psychobiological states induced by prolonged cognitive tasks. Okay, so this sounds very complex, but in reality, it's a way to say that the mental fatigue, it comes every time that you are engaging in something which is prolonged, which requires the you keep your attention on it for a very long time and you start to have it feeling like your brain is foggy and you feel very tired, you know. Usually the mental fatigue, it's a very tricky concept because a lot of people don't understand that it basically involves a lot of uh, activation and a lot of function in the brain. It doesn't, it not only makes you tired, it actually alters your mood as well. You might realize that when people are tired, when people are mentally fatigued, they usually are in a bad mood. So if they could rate on a scale the level of anger 
of frustration is usually higher. So the best example I always pull out for mental fatigue, because sometimes it's, although we use like cognitive task to induce mental fatigue in the lab, it's pretty simple to explain it like when you have a night when you didn't sleep very well, or if you had a night when you didn't sleep at all. Sleep deprivation or sleep restriction, it's very good example how people can experience mental fatigue, because this is, it's a high level of mental fatigue. So when you imagine this, you, you do understand that basically it alters a lot of your perceptions. So your mood is completely altered. So you feel anger, you feel more frustrated, everything you do, like it feels more difficult. And your vigor, your level of energy is low. And you actually, you're feeling that, okay, you feel like drain. My brain is foggy. You feel slow in doing things. It's actually funny because the first things I try to do is asking the people, like, okay, imagine you don't sleep all over through the night and you go up through the stairs. Every stair that you go up, you see that basically it's more difficult. So you feel like it's more difficult to get up. And this is actually quite funny because um, a lot of people say that if my legs are fresh, you know, I feel it in my legs that everything is good. But then they don't realize that sometimes this perception that they have is actually in their brain and it's not actually in their legs. So it was actually funny because many times we did a lot of studies uh, used protocol. So we were inducing mental fatigue using those long cognitive tasks that where people needed to do in front of the computer nonstop for 30 minutes up to one and a half hours. Well, sorry to interrupt, but this... well, what kind of uh, protocol, like what kind of activities were people doing? Activity like in the cognitive test. Now, yeah. basically we, we were doing uh, this cognitive test, we call, it's not computer games, but it looks like similar. So there are tasks that you do in front of a computer Basically, some of them are really, really simple, like a stroke task, if you know, the one with the colors and the words. So basically you have, I don't know if you ever heard, but there is this task where you see words appearing in a certain color and the words mimic a color. So for example, it's written blue, but the color is red. So you need to press with the color that you see, but not with the meaning of the words. That sometimes is the opposite. For example, like the color is red, but the writing say blue. So you, you get confused because you want to press blue, but then you need to press red. So this is the, what is called incongruency, in which your brain needs to think, it needs to inhibit the response, so because maybe it wants to press blue, but then it needs to press red. So basically by doing this, so your brain needs to work in what is called a response inhibition process it does, which induces mental fatigue if you do it for prolonged periods of time. For example, like 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes non-stop. The funny thing is that a lot of people think it's easy sometimes, but they don't realize in life how much people they're not able to put their attention on something constantly, non-stop, for more than two minutes. So imagine <laughs> yourself, imagine yourself, okay, can I put attention on the something for more than two minutes without ever putting my attention away? This, this is really difficult. This is what we try to ask our, our subjects that they were doing the studies, that they need to be constant focus because as soon as they drive their attention away, they basically, the performance goes down or they make mistakes. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's kind of like meditation in a way because whenever your yeah. mind starts wandering, you have to be able to catch yourself. And so yeah. something else interesting is like with that attention, 
I've noticed like an instrument growing up and playing music and you have to be paying attention when you're playing a really complicated piece. You have to be very present. And the same is true in technical mountain biking when it's really rocky and steep. If you stop focusing, that's when you crash. So it sounds like this um, increasing your endurance in your brain to be able to stay focused for more than two minutes is a really great way to just be more present in your life so that you can perform better. Yeah, that's true. Imagine that if on top of this one, you you do it in a very uncomfortable way. Because <laughs> doing this type of task can be very boring. So you really need to drive yourself, you know, a lot mentally to say, okay, I need to be awake. Imagine like, again, with this example of uh, the, the sleep deprivation. So you had a night you hadn't slept. I don't know if you have experienced this. I did many times and also... <laughs> of studies with the, with the military, I did many times. So the day after, in particular by the end of the day, after you had already like 48 hours of no sleeping, okay, you need to stay awake, but you really want to sleep. And believe me, the effort that you need to push and how much you need to drive your, your brain and you know, to say, okay, I need to be awake, it's very hard. Okay, so it's basically the same. In a very uncomfortable situation, this is where you need to drive yourself to keep doing it without like falling asleep, which is the same a little bit when it happens, when you need to focus, when you're doing a competition and you are maybe at the end of the stage, actually the three fourths of the stage is probably what I call when you really need to push yourself a lot because the finish line is still far away, but you had already more than half behind you. So this is the time where you start feeling the fatigue in the most, and where you need to really drive and stay focused on it. And yeah, then it the, takes more, more effort. To the, the interesting thing about that is like, you feel like your legs are tired, but it could be that your brain is tired. Like what you exactly. said about perception. Yes. Yeah. And the funny thing was that a lot of my subjects, we test like a lot of sedentary people, but we also test a lot of uh, like recreational amateur cyclists and also elite cyclists. And they all report the same. They really think that the legs, the, what is not working the day that they do the cognitive task and their performance is not the best, they really believe there was something wrong in their legs. They say, no, no, I really feel it in my legs. And actually it wasn't because it was only your brain. So this is actually, this is actually the tricky things, you know, that when you think it's in your legs, <laughs> it's, in, it's in your brain. Yeah, this they is were so interesting. So, yeah. Because, yeah, like, this is something I've personally been experiencing a lot lately because I've started doing a lot of different projects. And I thought, oh, like, I'm just tired from racing or I'm tired from training and I'll reduce my training load and reduce my training load. But then I still feel tired on my bike. And I think, well, for as little as I'm riding, I shouldn't be tired on my bike. And then I thought, well, maybe it's nervous system inputs. But then I realized, like, on my rest days, I would work a lot of hours. Or even if their race had a later start, like a race had an 11 a.m. start, I would work before the start of the race. And it wasn't until I started hearing about this research that I was able to tie the two together, that you actually have to rest your brain. If you're going to, as an athlete, if you need to rest, you need to rest your brain as well. Yeah. Yeah. And this is more difficult because... Because the people don't notice, the only thing is that they do the physical rest. Sometimes the physical rest, like also sleeping, can be like a way to recovery also in your brain. How many times happens in athletes, uh, you might be a witness of this, that when you've been through maybe a very hard training camp, the amount of hours that you sleep increase. 
sensible. For example, one hour more. If you could sleep a little bit more, you would. It's because your body needs a rest, but for your body to need a rest, you just need to be seated or lie down. But actually, your brain really needs a rest because physical performance, like in particular at high intensity, like high intensity training, it's really cognitive demanding as well. It's not only physical demand, it's actually cognitive demanding. So, so this is perception this is of something... pain, right? Is it the perception of pain versus effort? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, you no, know, it's because you're actually driving yourself to do something very, very uncomfortable against, you know, very high level of effort. In most of cases, very high level of pain. And then you need to fight this experience, like to push yourself, because naturally speaking, it's not something that we were meant to do. Like the high interval train, high intensity interval training, like above threshold, it's very cognitive demanding because your body says you need to stop because it's very, you know, it's very hard. And you say, no, I need to do it. I need to complete my session. I need to complete my repetition. That's cognitive demanding. As much as for uh, any guy who is on diet, he needs to stop eating and they put a cake in front of him. And you, and you stare in front of this cake for one hour. That's cognitive demanding. <laughs> That's true. Like, oh, any drug addicted person where he's trying to get clean and the drugs is all around him and he needs to stop for not getting it. It's the same. It's the same concept. Yeah, I remember hearing so, a, a study where people had cookies put in front of them and one group they were allowed to eat as many cookies as they wanted and the other group was told not to eat those cookies and then they yeah. somehow deduced that the people that were not eating the cookies and wanted to had a higher likelihood of cheating on their spouse because their willpower had been reduced. I think I yeah. read that study in peak performance in this book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, about this uh, willpower concept, there is, uh, there is a loss. I mean, it goes back from uh, the famous marshmallow study. I don't know if you ever heard about the kids. So they were putting kids in a room and they were basically giving them a choice. So they were putting a bowl of marshmallow in front of them. And they say, like, if they would not eat the marshmallow that is there, at the end of this session, they were controlling them for seven minutes or ten minutes. I don't remember exactly. Basically, they would receive double of the amount of the marshmallow. So some kids, they were able to restrain themselves. Some of the kids, no. Because the, the people that restrain themselves, apparently, they were following them through all their life. And they showed that when they were like, uh, when they finished college or university, apparently they had a, the people that were able to restrain themselves, they were, they were also the one who had a higher grades in the school. Let's say it's very, very difficult to use this correlation. But I think the whole point is this one, that high level of willpower or high level of self-control are very important features for you to succeed in certain times usually you have in social life. If your level of willpower is high or your level of self-control to control yourself to a task, to something, to a behavior that you want to do at the moment, to get a momentary reward in order to get something better later. So disability is definitely very important. It's important for athletes, like it's important for any people. If you have a goal in your life and you want to try to go there and you see the big pictures at the end of that, instead of going for the momentary reward. So, Cool. I want to hear about your mindfulness research that you've done. Um, I saw a presentation that you had worked on. So can you tell us about that experiment? Yeah, so basically because I'm interested in any type of cognitive training that you can apply to improve uh, performance, 
I basically started digging into different domains. And mindfulness is one of the hot topics that's been that's been now now me for the last maybe five, six years, I would say. Because when there was this merging on the Western culture with the Eastern culture, like uh, this mindfulness came in and it's actually, they also did a lot of studies with it and it really brought a lot of benefits to the Western culture, I would say. And the idea is the same one that we were talking before. So what mindfulness does is that basically it gives you this idea to be more focused on the present moment. And I mean, Technically speaking, it's like this this, this awareness to be more present of uh, the present moment without judging it if it's actually negative or positive. This sounds, again, complex, but in reality, it's very simple and powerful. So what it does is this one, like anything happens in your life, instead of take it as a positive or negative, which then it stays in your mind as a negative or positive, like you have a negative days, you are in a bad mood, you carry on this bad mood from these negative events home in the evening. And basically what you do is like you carry on having a bad day until you go to sleep. Well, let's say that if you engage into mindfulness, so if you are a mindful people or if you're a mindful person, what happens is that you see these events coming to you. You don't say it's negative. You don't say it's positive. You just say it's coming. It creates an effect that you need to deal with and you're going to deal with it. So without saying it's positive, without saying it's negative, it sounds very difficult. I think it is very difficult. But the whole concept is this one, because when I translate it in an environment like sport, my idea is this one personally. It's all about stress, how you deal with stress. So and when you talk about stress, it's always from a psychological perspective, stress, it's defined like when you feeling out of control, of the environment that surrounds you. So when the environment gets out of control, out of your control, you start feeling stressed. Because if the environment is fully under your control, you don't feel any stress. And then you can apply it to working environment, relationship environment, family environment, performance environment. So the idea is that like using mindfulness, what you do is that you reduce the likelihood that your level of stress goes higher because you lose control of the environment. Losing control of the environment can mean many things. Because if you're mentally tired and you are in a bad mood and you see everything negative and you start to perceive as well that your ability to do things, your perceived ability is also lower, automatically you are losing control of the environment around you, which in this case could be a race, could be a training session. And once this happens, then the result is that your performance drastically is decreased. That's why when mindfulness helps. On top of this, there is a lot of neuroscientific studies that prove that mindfulness activated and deactivated certain areas of the brain, making your brain a little bit more efficient to deal with certain resources. Because everyone knows that your ability to sustain attention, to have your focus on things, is limited. It's limited because at some point the fatigue will kick in and it will go down. Either you are a soldier who is patrolling around, either you are an athlete, uh, in particular endurance athletes, people that do ultra marathon is the same, that you need to have your focus always on, but at some point it will go down. So if mindfulness can help with the type of resources you have to be more efficient in using them, then it actually has a beneficial effect. So what are some exercises that people can do to improve their mindfulness? 
Well, if you imagine the with the study we pull out, where the basically we had handball players. This is actually it's, it's, it's this was a very good team. So under 19, there was the national team. Let's put it the under 19 the national team of 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 handball. Uh, it was enough to do less than three hours a week of training. So we're talking about 20 minutes a day, 25 minutes a day. This is not a lot, and it it provided a significant effect in the cognitive and physical and specific physical performance in handball. So this is because, like I said, sometimes you don't notice, but you don't really spend much time on focusing on something for very long time. So your brain really get an adaptation, even by small amount of this training. To mention an example, for example, completely different, but it's still valid. Like if you do three hours a week of a working memory test, your brain adapts. Actually, there are studies even published in Nature that they prove that basically your brain function changes after only four weeks of memory training. So our ability to adjust to certain stimulus, it's very strong and it's very effective. So how is the memory training different from mindfulness training? Is it Because it seems like to me mindfulness is more on the meditation side of things, and correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. And then there's that app, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Lumosity, and it's supposed to train yeah. your brain. So like yeah. it seems like those are two separate things, but yeah. So yeah. I brought the memory training as an example to tell you how flexible and the adaptable your brain is. So if you give them a stimulus that is completely new, and you use it as a training, even as little as two three hours a week, over only four weeks, and you already see an effect. You actually see an effect in changing in the brain structure because they did study using the MRI. So the mindfulness, what it does, like I said, it's about this ability, where, because sometimes happens is in life that your brain goes all over. So imagine like you focus on a million of things and at the same time you don't focus on nothing. That's because you're here, you're there, this is how it goes. It's a little bit like, you know, imagine you are a light bulb and the light goes everywhere. And then, Instead, when you do mindfulness or what it does, when you try to put a focus and attention on only one aspect, most of the time, if you are a basic learner, they focus on breathing. So basically, you turn your light bulb into a laser. You know, all the lights, it's focusing one point and it not goes all around. And then it's more efficient for what you need to do because the laser points exactly in the goal of the direction you want and it doesn't spread out in all the direction. I think this should help also to reduce certain activity in the brain that is not necessary in certain tasks, like, for example, like riding a bike or when you are in a race. And that's why it's very important, I think, and it can definitely help because there's a lot of athletes that to connect in the mindfulness with this idea of flow. I don't know if you ever heard of experience, it's a flow idea. Mm -hmm. So it's basically the same concept. Because when you ask athletes, it's again, you won't ask scientists about flow, they give you millions of definitions. So, so but let's stay practical. When you ask athletes how they feel when they are in flow, a lot of athletes respond, that is when they feel completely in control on the environment around them. So they are, they are there on the, imagine they are on the track, ready to go the long jump, on the high jump, and everything around them is not that it stops. It's just everything is in control. They have this feeling nothing can go wrong. What is this? This is it's not that nothing can go wrong in reality. It's that they are so focused in what they have to do 
The rest, everything else, it doesn't matter, or they are not thinking about, or they're not putting any attention on them. So when you reach these states, then you are completely focused. The movements that are automatic, they will go automatically in the best possible way. And you can focus exactly on what you need to do cognitively in that moment. And this is how they basically experience it. And it's connected because it comes uh, from training, because if you're training physically, like if you're an elite athlete, it's been proven even by study from my research group that your cognitive level is higher compared to sedentary people because the physical activity helps your cognition level. Okay? But it, sometimes it's not the only way. That's why if you add on top also this cognitive training in it, like you can really reach higher level in this case. And a lot of people now are very interested in to try to understand this flow concept and how you can recreate this flow concept. And it is not only it's not only relevant for sport, it can also be relevant for work. Because in the because when you talk about performance, it can be work performance, like it can be sport performance. In this case, uh, in your podcast, we talk about sport performance. Yeah. Yeah, so like, is there are there resources where if somebody wanted to start practicing this tomorrow, they wanted to have exercises they could do for both um, cognition and mindfulness? Like, where can people find that information to get started? You know, I think nowadays, one of the main uh, issues for a lot of people is uh, the time consumption, because uh, which is also affect a lot the compliance. So a lot of people, and they buy the idea, that means like, okay, I think I really think it's helpful, but sometimes it's very difficult to actually put in your schedules. There is many ways. So you can actually, when I was a student in uh, North Wales, in my university, there was a big research group doing neuroscience on mindfulness, but they were also doing classes. So I was going to classes on mindfulness meditation once a week, and then I was trying them on home. Nowadays, if you don't have time to go for a class, you could try to use an app that has a lot of uh, guided uh, meditations that actually are quite effective. Nowadays, one of the good ones that it's really working. I tried personally. I know that a lot of athletes are using it. I know that in before year 2016, a lot of British athletes used as well. And this is Headspace. Not to, but it's not the only one. But those kind of apps, they helps you doing a kind of guided meditation, and you can use them to at least trying to get a moment of, of like relaxing, have a self-awareness of yourself. And it's actually working very well. I still suggest that you do a proper course because the frontal lessons helps you, in particular with people that are like uh, experienced teachers. But then if you want to help your compliance to, at home, you can try to use an app that also reminds you to do it. You know, you can track a little bit how many sessions you did. It's actually nice. It helps nowadays. So, And for cognitive training as well, like uh, it's the same things. Like now this concept of doing brain training in general, or cognitive training, is coming more and more. Actually, when I started, the people were laughing at us. Like, it was very difficult to introduce the concept, even in sport. But I, I was sure, like my supervisor before me, that in no more than 10 years, everyone would talk about the cognition and the effect of the brain in sport performance. I gave myself a, a kind of a deadline. I would say that for me, Tokyo would be the Olympic Games, where after this one, before and after, people will, will all talk about the cognition. So how you can use uh, all the neuroscience, 
how you can apply this one into sport. So, but if you want to use like cognitive training, like for example, like uh, what I'm working on, uh, which is very effective and it's for athletes, actually for people that really want to improve their performance. I'm working now with this app that I help to develop called SOMA, uh, Neuroperformance Technology. With this one, you can do a lot of uh, cognitive tasks in depending for which sport you do. And uh, it's actually very effective and you get a tons of feedback in terms of measurements and uh, support. And, and I find it very handy. Like again, of course, you can use any app because now it's plenty of app everywhere. But in, the concept is this one, that you can now, you reach a limit as an athlete where you cannot train in more than a certain amount of hours physically, because otherwise you also increase your risk of injuries. You increase not to have the super compensation they give you this improvement in your performance. So touching these limits above this one, what you can do is that you can start loading your brain. So you can train your body until its limits, and you can start in overloading the brain until the limits. And this is probably the gap that they're trying to reach now using the cognitive training. Because they want to hack to this part of the brain that they're now realizing is very important in performance, in particular during the races. You know, how can, can I push a little bit more by deceiving my, my brain about my perception of effort? So, because I've been working a lot about uh, perception of effort in general. All my PhD thesis was about perception of effort. So if you find a way to alter somehow your perception of effort, either in training or in competition, you might be 99.9% sure that you can change the performance outcome. Because if your perception of effort is lower at a given power output, speed, doesn't matter, you can be sure that you will be able to last longer. So how do you change your perception of effort? There's, there's many ways you can change perception of effort. So let's make an example. When you're mentally tired, doing uh, one and a half hours of high strenuous cognitive test, what happened? Your perception of effort is altered. There's a lot of study that we did it. It proves that with no difference, with no differences physiologically, the only things who was, who was changing apart from the actual performance, it was the perception of effort at any certain given power or speed. So I altered the perception of effort of my subjects or my athletes, and they, they're doing a time trial, like a, a 30 minutes time trial all out, or they do like what we call a time exhaustion, which is a fixed power. You go for as long as you can. And in any given power, there is the same. When they are mentally tired, and you ask them the perception of effort on this scale from 0 to 10 from board, they reach you that it's, it's more effortful. It's the same concept I told you before. If you sleep deprived or you are mentally tired, I ask you to go to go up to the first floor through the stairs. I, I tell you how effortful it was. And you point on the scale that is more effortful compared to when you're fresh. It's the same concept. So now imagine. If your perception of effort goes lower, your performance automatically gives a boost up. And the other way around, if your perception of effort is higher because you are mentally tired or you are in a bad mood, because this is the same, basically your performance will decrease. That's why a lot of people should put a lot of attention about all these aspects that they might have to your perception of effort because this definitely will impact your performance. For example, like, 
a lot of uh, attention now is focused on the recovery aspect and the sleep because they realize that a lot of athletes they train a lot they have a problem sleeping and then you get to the race where you you cannot control if the if the athletes will sleep properly or not and this probably can definitely has an effect on the performance they're going to have on the race and I mean, it's really important. Same thing for the nutrition. For example, when you're mentally tired, you drink coffee, your mental fatigue in a way goes away. So caffeine can help with yes. mental fatigue. Yeah, caffeine can definitely reduce the effect of mental fatigue. Uh, another example I could give you, I think mindfulness can definitely reduce perception of effort because this is what I saw with my athletes in this study. They basically, for the same type of task they were doing, they were performing much better but the perception of effort they felt was the same, which means that for the same perception of effort, they were performing better. So if the performance is the same, the perception of effort is lower. So if somebody is trying to do a workout, how can they measure their mental fatigue? Like you mentioned fogginess, looking at how much yeah. you slept and looking at your mood. Are, are there other ways that people can assess yeah. their mental fatigue? So a couple of years I was working in, um, in England I was working on a beautiful project trying to assess biomarker of fatigue from an objective perspective because a lot of people are interested in finding like uh, neurophysiological measures because they don't like the questioners. And, and also there are other research groups that have been working a lot like uh, worldwide on the same topic. And at the end, they all agree that basically, although you have biomarker of fatigue that I will explain to you in a second, it's still the best way is actually ask yourself, how do you feel? Probably if you do it in a more structured way, for example, if you do yourself a questionnaire, like we usually use a questionnaire, like mood questionnaires or perception of effort, you know, together to see exactly how do you feel, is still one of the best way because it's highly correlated to also anything happens in your body, your brain. But there are some biomarkers that can tell you definitely when you're mentally tired. For example, like if you were trying to do a reaction time test on a computer, it's a very simple task. So you are in front of a computer and as soon as one circle appears, you press. So it's just reaction time. So if you do for three minutes and this is what usually the military people were doing it. And you can see that when you're mentally tired, for example, when people were sleep deprived, your reaction time over three minutes of test or five minutes or 10 minutes was much lower. It means that your brain was lower in response to a stimulus, which is the same what happens in life. So when you're mentally tired, your brain is not able to respond as fast as compared to when it's fresh. So this is also a way. Plus, there is a lot of people that nowadays they're using like electrophysiological measurement. So basically they use the, this EG cup and they try to measure the electrical activity in the brain. And definitely you can find some biomarker in the frequency in certain area of the brain, usually related to the prefrontal cortex. I don't want to go more in details, I don't think it's necessary. But there are biomarker definitely in the brain, or like in the body, a lot of people use heart rate variability. Same. Well, there are some study recently that seems to prove that heart rate variability is not, you cannot use it to actually measure when you're highly or lower mentally fatigued. So, but still it's a good indicator from a cardiovascular perspective about your body state, you know, if it, if it needs more rest on. 
So there is a lot, but sometimes it's it's enough to listen to yourself, to your body, to your mind, maybe doing it in a more standardized way. So you, you make yourself your own question. You make yourself like a scale could be even a simple piece of paper with a line and you just cross it on to have an idea because it works. If you do in the proper standardized way, it actually works. And, and it's quite effective. It's like the effort. There is a lot of study now that prove that you could like uh, doing your training load, you could build your training, your training load, just using the RP scale, not even using the heart rate. This is a big thing, and so a lot of people will not agree with it. But the science says that you can because the RP, if you use it properly, it correlates with the performance as much as heart rate. I actually use RPE the most in my training over heart rate, over power, because the perception of effort is ultimately what's going to matter. Yeah, that's good, Sonia. So I'm, I'm happy you agree with me. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's a very powerful tool, you know, and uh, it's also very cheap. So it's just... That's right, it's cheap. Yeah, just <laughs> you just need to, I think the important thing is just need to, to learn how to use it properly, standardized, so you get the best out of it. So I think this is important. And not many people actually doing it. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about overtraining, like overtraining the brain, because if you mentioned somebody's going to train physically to the number of hours they can train, and then on top of it, they start training their brain. But if training your brain affects your physical fatigue and also affects your physical recovery, isn't that overtraining the system too much and not giving yourself enough recovery? Like where is the line and how does somebody figure that part out? So that's a good question, Sonia, because this is a question that all the coach ask me. <laughs> the least old one, they really, and because they say, okay, Walter, this is also the same, uh, like, I like, because this is the same conversation I have uh, when we propose the brain training to the badminton players. So the point is this one, definitely, because it's, a, first, it's a new thing. So there is not a lot of research behind it. And so giving a, like a straight answer, it's very complex, but definitely I can tell you that like any other typology of training that you include, any new typology of training that you include in your training plan, what do you do automatically? You need to reset your recovery strategies or your recovery time, you know, to avoid this uh, overtraining. Imagine that all of a sudden someone comes to you and say, okay, Sonia, like now we're going to introduce this new like uh, type of training, like this uh, five minutes repetition all out uh, on an uphill like this. So you do it, you include it, but your coach or you, if you are the, the coach yourself, automatically what you do, you refine as well your recovery strategies because you did this one. It's the same things. When you include a new type of training, even if it's cognitive, automatically you need to change also your recovery set. Because like I told you, when you're starting overloading your brain a lot, when it's also physical, when it's also your physical part, it's quite loaded. You really need to start finding your recovery strategies. So you need to increase your time for recovery if necessary, and you need to find a new strategy for recovery. So imagine like now you know by your own experience uh, that being a, having a day of rest physically is not enough to recover mentally. Now this is, you know, because you told me you learned it in the few years. The hard and way. Before you exactly. <laughs> So now you know that you need to find new strategies to recovery, like even mentally. And then it's the same things. If you overload your brain, you will try to find some strategy to recovery from this mental overload 
uh, if it's necessary, you might take it off the brain training for some weeks and you might put it back again when necessary. What we're doing is like we, uh, what I try to do with the badminton players, uh, where we're using it in a certain period, that it was like uh, six weeks before we were going into competition, because that's where we wanted to overload them. And then we were carefully to put the training in a way that it would not affect the physical training, which is not difficult. Like, because instead of uh, making it more difficult to do the, the training session, they were able to do the training session as normally, and then performance and overloading at the end of the training session. So you don't have an impact on your session, on your training session, but you still create the overload. And of course, when Hadley goes home, like at least the Hadley's uh, we worked with, they needed to sleep more. They report that they were home, they were super tired, more than usual, mentally, because physically they were <laughs> at the end. So basically, they needed to sleep more. So automatically, you see, it's an adjustment. But this was a period of four weeks, six weeks. Yeah, I also think these signs of mental fatigue can show up in sport and decision-making processes. Like, for example, in mountain biking, particularly technical mountain biking, where you have to make lots of split-second reactionary decisions when you're reading a trail, reading the rocks and roots and everything on the trail. There's people who have, and, and myself included, some days I'm on it and I can make decisions and I'm riding the technical stuff really well. And then there's days where you just feel off, where you're not riding the technical really well. And that could be because of mental fatigue because you just can't make that decision. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I found myself that a best example I can give you, and I've been working extensively with them, it's orienteering. Hmm. So orienteering athletes, athletes that basically need to run in a forest or depends in a city, because nowadays they do also sprint in cities. They run super fast. We're talking about people that could run 5K in 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 seconds. So it's really fast. And they goes around, they do like uh, what you just saying you did with mountain biking. They do with a map in their hands and they need to decide where to go based on what they have in their map. And all this, when they basically perform is a high intensity. So your decision-making process is as important as your physical fitness. So but definitely, like you say, you, you have days that when you're more tired than others, it doesn't work. You know? And if you need to read the routes like you do, where to go on the rock and things, it may become very, very difficult. So that's why now that there is more of this concept about the brain training or the effect of uh, how the cognitive, how the cognition has actually an effect on the physical performance, on the decision-making aspect, now it's time that people revise the recovery strategies actually to actually have a proper recovery even even for the brain. And it might also happen to you that it's not that every day you do very highly technical training. Sometimes you only do like a simple physical training. I don't know. For example, like when I was training the orienteers, uh, the orienteers, they do, they, they have some days where they don't do map training. So they do, they do not use the map, they just run. Hmm. They just run. Okay, so for example, like if you want to load the brain in a certain periods of the training, you might well want to do when the outcome of the training is not relevant. Let's make an example. If you, if you are doing a high intensity training, so you need to do 10 repetitions high intensity, so you need to complete it. Okay, 
I wouldn't say that it's wise to do the brain training there because you might risk not to finish your, your session. But sometimes you have the, the pull-down training where basically you just go out for a ride. Then in, in, this, in this case, you might probably be doing it because the outcome of that training is not important for you. Either you do like 20, 30, or 40, 50 kilometers, you know, because you're not doing it. For example, you, you are not doing a certain specific training. Same things for the, the, for the technical aspect. Funny things about what you said is because you mentioned it that you want to know a little bit about mental training and uh, sprint performance. Mm-hmm. Because it comes back with it. I ran a study when I was in Australia at the Australian Institute of Sport with track cyclists. Actually, this was a really, really good study. We basically we were mentally fatigued them and then we were asked them to do like a, a kind of warm up. It was like a ramp test. So you do warm up at three different power. And then after this, they were doing on the cycle ergometer, like 15 seconds all out. As, I, as expected, the 50 seconds all out did not, was not affected at all by the mental fatigue. So the power the athletes were producing was still the same. Actually, I was very impressed because, because the track cyclists are really like, uh, like strong people. I seen this uh, crank set bend like on the 15 seconds of So I can tell you, like, I, I was really impressed. However, when they were doing the warm-up, which was this very simple task where they were cycling five minutes at three different intensities. At the intensity, we were basically going up. I think it was 100, 115, 100 wattage. When they were doing this one, although the, the cardiovascular response was the same, the heart rate was the same, and the blood lack that they produced was the same, the RPE was actually different. So they were experienced the warm-up being more difficult when they were mentally tired compared to when they were fresh. So when I presented those studies a couple of years ago in a conference, I say, like, I, I doubt, I strongly doubt that uh, the mental fatigue will affect the actual sprint because the sprint, like, uh, like for example, six seconds or uh, 15 seconds all out where you don't need to pace yourself. There is not a lot of cognition in it. There is not a lot of cognitive demand in it. It's just to go all out. You don't pace yourself. You already see your finish line. But it's very, it's very related to this, the ability of your muscle to produce the power that you need. Unfortunately, the track cycling uh, events is not only about the power that you can produce because it's very technical. I don't know if you ever seen um, in a velodrome some of this competition. It's a super technical. I don't know if you ever seen yeah. because it depends on a lot of parameters. So I, I never know a lot. I didn't know a lot about track cycling until I went to Australia. And then I started realizing that, wow, okay, there is strategies behind, you know, the people that are on top are always in favor. So you need to start when you are on top on the others. So, and then there is a lot of people and then you need to decide at which time you want to start your sprint. So, and you know, and if you're able to be in the draft of the other people, it's fantastic. But it's very, it's very mentally demanding. So the idea was this when I said, if in your warm-up, you feel your perception of effort high, it might be more likely that you're not completely fresh to think which strategy you need to do. Yeah. When you have... And I was pulling out this video about Roy winning in literally in the last half second. So it was fourth and then it became first. So that this is something like, you know, the ability you need to think when you have 60 kilometers an hour with a bike all out, I think it's impressive. It's impressive. And it really, I think, it requires the, 
you're really focusing what you do. So I want to ask you about what constitutes rest so your brain is actually resting because if you're say you're resting you're not exercising and you're not working but if you're reading a book that requires concentration if you're playing music yeah. if you're you're doing something where your mind is really engaged does that count as rest or is that also contributing to mental fatigue mm-hmm. yeah okay that's that's a difficult question <laughs> because for example like if you sleep for sure you rest so if i should choose one recovery aspect for the brain, I probably sleep would be would be definitely the best, if I might say, because all because your brain it's very tricky also to measure because something I learned when I was in the department of psychology working my my PhD is that there is no baseline in, in the brain, so because the brain every day has a different activity going on it's very very different actually that's why a lot a lot of studies. When they use like uh, to, when they try to measure brain activity, it's all about the difference from the baseline on that day, because because the baseline is not like the heart rate. You know, you have a baseline that more or less is always the same. No, essentially the brain activity is, is fluctuating, so it's actually ra- rather complex. But definitely, like uh, if you engage in some activities, like for example reading on all this, definitely you're actually doing something. It's also true, though, that the level of engagement, positive or negative, or even in emotion, that it gives you a certain activity you do, it might actually help. Because if you're engaging in an activity to put you in a good mood, I would expect that you are recovering. Hmm. So some people play music and they love it. And so, they like watch Netflix, binge watching Netflix, which I'm trying to start doing that for my some recovery. People <laughs> some people zoom out watching watching stuff because they don't think about what they were doing. They're just focusing on uh, getting into the story and they completely zoom out. So I honestly, with my athletes, I would never tell them not to do those activities if they found a certain relief by doing them. Of course, if uh, I see them, like usually we do sleep uh, sleep hygiene with the athletes, say, I wouldn't recommend them to be on the phone playing games three hours a night before going to bed. Then you will not be able to fall asleep and then you wake up and clearly you haven't slept very well. No. But if you say like, okay, I'm going to have a... People who want to have a nap in the afternoon, if they feel like, some people, they want to watch something to zoom out. For me, it's perfectly fine. Because this is their way to zoom out. You know, this is 20 years of how they've been doing to zoom out. And if I come here and tell them, look, this is not good for you, even if it puts you in a good mood, I mean, <laughs> I'm losing from the start. Mm-hmm. But definitely, you know, I think the Hatlis has, a, in particular, the Hatlis has a certain way of understanding themselves. So when they're really tired, at least in my experience, or when they do double training in a day, most of them has a feeling to go have a nap in the afternoon. This is not because they haven't slept properly. This is because they're mentally drained from the first training session before getting into the other one. Some other people instead relaxing. Some people have a shower, some people have a bath. You know, from a scientific point of view, if I could, like I would suggest them to do some kind of activity that could somehow reduce this total brain function. Like sleeping is one of this one. Mindfulness can, can be helpful. Now we are exploring new new strategies using 
like music. You know now they do this uh, mind music or binaural beats music. We are trying to uh, to explore this strategy to use this type of music to relax you and see if it works mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. I know that some people, for some people, it really works in general, even if they use their own music. So we are trying to explore this way because music really helps. Like it helps to boost the motivation in the people during the competition. It also helps the helps them to relax. So it would be rather like uh, it would be super clever to say do not use the music to recovery if you're actually using the music to boost your performance or you boost your training. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's that- like why people listen to music to fall asleep or listen to a sound machine because it helps relax them. Exactly. So, and if it works and they sleep fine, it's good. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be the one tell them don't do it. Definitely engage into something that it relax you and it relieves you compared to something that stress you out. Sometimes it's not possible though, because if you have kids home, <laughs> uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. But you know, this is the. I think it's, it's what you know. When people ask me, oh, you know, you would you like to use this brain training, uh, this your cognitive training on every athlete and all of that. I don't think everyone needs it because also like uh, when I was talking to Alex uh, and he said as well, is some people already are exposed to a lot of uh, cognitive overload in their daily life. But it's also true that a lot of people are not. Because I know athletes. So when I was a kid, I remember I had uh, my heroes because I was watching rowing. So when I was a kid, I was watching these uh, these brothers called Brothers Abagnale. So they won uh, medals in 1986. Okay, so those kids come from a very poor family. Uh, they were actually agriculture, you know, the people that work in, in the countryside. And it's a very tough life. And then I remember the story of them uh, because it was close to where I was living. And those, are, those were people that wake up five in the morning to go and training. And then going to school or go to work, come back home at five, going working with the family and going training again. So, and these people, they also, they want, and they had this kind of lifestyle. Now I'm going to say you need to do the brain training because those people are like engaging already. Do you understand? So their life is already tough enough. But then you also have a lot of other athletes that because let's say the sponsors, because of let's say the the sport is uh, is viewed worldwide, they have a much much easier life. And maybe when your life starts becoming very 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 easy, it's true you can train better, but you you might miss on this you know on this cognitive overload that makes things uncomfortable. Because this is how the end of what it is. So it it has to be uncomfortable. This is what training is about, even the physical training. If, he, if he's not uncomfortable, it doesn't pay off, isn't it? Like you say, like... Yeah, I actually, this actually is leading into the last question I wanted to ask you, and you kind of already answered it, but the question was, yeah, people who, like most cyclists, even professional cyclists, don't just have the luxury of riding and recovering and that's it. Like the majority have to work, like most even pro cyclists have to work a job. And then there's a yeah. lot of people who are training like, you know, seven to 10 hours a week and they work a full-time job and have a family and they're trying to train. So all of these people are getting a strong mental stimulus. So they might actually need the opposite. They might need to consider mental recovery instead of mental training. 
And then those people actually might have, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but those people probably have stronger mental endurance than somebody that only rides and focuses on just the physical part of their life. Yes, because I, I mean, when I personally go and look at my athletes, so I speak with the people when someone comes to me and asks me for consultancy suggestions, the first things I do is, is assess many aspects of their life, not only of their training. Because if I don't take into account the rest of their life, am I missing a big chunk to actually understand what you do? And usually, yes, like some people are really exposed to a lot of, uh, of let's say, of cognitive demanding tasks. They are coming from the social aspect of their life. And in this case, like it's, uh, I mean, it might not be so wise to put another extra kind of cognitive training on those people because maybe it might not be necessary. The point is that some athletes, you can, you know, I'm still working on because now I'm doing a project trying to understand which people might need more or less of this cognitive training. It's kind of, uh, call it the kind of talent identification to understand which people are more inclined to be mentally fatigued compared to others. And it's a combination of many factors, like genetic factors, adaptation factor, which comes from the way you've been living your life. Because also the way you've been living your life tells us a lot. Because some people go and need to work eight hours, they come back and they're still fresh. Because they've been used to this for many years. So for them, this is normal for me. So I come back home, also I have two kids, I play, this is normal. For some other people, it's not. So when then you come for training, like when you do an assessment in general, like physical assessment, mental assessment, cognitive assessment, you try to understand to see what are the people that are really like reluctant to say, oh my God, if I stay one or two minutes in front of the computer and doing this task, I'm dying. Okay, so this is say something about you. And then you have other athletes that come and say, oh, let me do 30 minutes. Oh, this is like a game. Two, 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 they do fantastic <laughs> performance. They never go down. Like, this is what happens when I was in Australia. Some of, some of the cyclists were like this. So, because those are people trained a lot. Maybe they have a certain past. But then I also had some athletes that at the end of the 30 minutes of a task, they were completely smashed. They were in a bad mood. They were yelling to everyone. That tells you a lot. That tells you a lot. So what you can do is you need to find like uh, the right combination of training. Clearly, if I had a chance when I was a kid to work, not as a kid, with these with, with, with this rowers in Italy, I would never propose a brain training, but I would find any possible solution to have uh, any type of recovery strategies who would help them to relax. But maybe sometimes it will not even be necessary because they might tell you, look, I relax when I sit on my armchair at night at nine and I sip a glass of wine or whatever they were sipping. They say, I feel I'm, I'm relaxed. You know, I know. You know, it really depends on the mind of uh, the athletes. Definitely it helps that you come from a certain environment. I'm not precluding, I mean, it's not like saying that I'm, pre- I'm precluding people that coming from a uh, from a rich environment to do this. But definitely it helps if you come from an environment where you need to work many hours since you are a kid, because it definitely gives you a certain like mind structure. So, you know, I need to work, I need to work. Like training is something I do on top, but they were, it was compulsory working. This is, I know, by personal experience. So, and it, it might give you something. Of course, it's not enough because you need to have uh, training components, genetic components. There is many components there. 
but definitely the mental toughness, let's call it, you know, I think it was there. And nowadays, all you can do is trying to finding like uh, which athletes need what. And this is very important. Like I was in one of these conferences a couple of weeks ago in the States and they were talking about how you need to do, you need to move from this uh, average concept of, you know, you take your studies, say, so we prove this is work, this is works, but it's only a big population. And then you need to move in doing what is called a single subject studies where you have in front of you your athletes and you need to understand what works and what does not work for him personally, because this may be a completely different story than from other people. Just a quick example that some higher guy, the caffeine was not working on him. It's very rare, but it's possible. And he would say, no, I'm sorry, but if I get caffeine, I don't sleep at night, but my performance does not change. And it was true. So there was no point to keep pushing to say, you need to get caffeine because it works on 99 of population. Yeah, but you always can find people for which it doesn't. That's why the job of the coach or like a sports scientist or trainer physiologist, it doesn't matter, is to try to understand the person you have in front of on a one-on-one and then uh, apply it what really works on them. So let's say each of your athletes become your small one-subject study design for the rest of life. <laughs> I noticed that you had done some heat acclimatization studies and training for athletes. Can you give some tips for people who are going to somewhere that's hot that they can do for heat acclimatization? Yeah. Yeah, I basically, this is what usually we do is basically the heat acclimatization is very important because, for example, for many years I lived in UK. When I was training many years ago, I was a triathlete, just amateur, no professional. I did also some Ironman and half Ironman, so I was into the long distance. And my main problem was I was living in UK where basically it's uh, cold all the time or it's at the best 20 degrees. And then um, some of the competition I was performing were Nice, Malta, or like Elba Islands. So we're talking about countries that in July, in June and July are like both terrified. So it's complex to do a kind of probably heat acclimatization because, but what I can suggest to do to people, it, re- it really depends also on, on the portfolio, like on the wallet that they have. So <laughs> if you have a chance and you are planning to do a race like in a beautiful uh, islands, like for example, Canary Islands, if you plan to do an Ironman in Canary Islands, which they do, I strongly suggest you that you put your holiday with it and you go there a couple of weeks before. Okay. Because you need at least six, eight days in advance in the heat, in the same on similar heat okay. that, you, uh, they, that you will do your rings. And you need to perform as well at least four or six training sessions there. And it's not only important that you leave, there. It's also that you actually do at least six, eight training sessions in it. Usually, in general, it takes from one week to 10 days. It really depends. It could also stretch to two weeks to do a proper heat acclimatization for which your body starts to respond. You start sweating more. You know, you in your sweat, you lose less of the minerals that you need. There is a lot of physiological adaptation, but there's also a lot of psychological adaptation because the heat can really heat you badly like even from a psychological perspective. Such studies, they prove that when you train in the heat, it helps you also in normal condition. Because it's not only the physiological aspect that will improve, it's also your psychological aspect. So you need to try your best. I remember when I, I was lucky because I was working in a university where we had a heat chamber. 
and it's climate change. So we were doing studies on uh, in exposure to heat, exposure. So I could basically pray and I beg the technician to use the chamber and do some proper training at 35 degree in the chamber, even if I was living in Wales for just two weeks before. So although I was not going to the place, I was doing six, eight, 10 training sessions in the heat, two hours, three hours before going there. And this was the best call. Another way you can do, if you don't have all this um, possibility, is that you can try to, to do what m many people do. If it's uh, cold, you need to put a lot of jackets on you, as much as you can, <laughs> and you go out for a run or for a cycle, and it's going to get very, very warm. <laughs> although it's not the best solution, no, although it's not the best solution, it actually helps. It actually helps. And what about like sauna Both training? Physiological... Ah, so yeah. But uh, you do sauna training? Oh, okay. Oh, no, yeah, no. That's cool. I've, never, I've never done it, but I've heard of it. So I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. But I don't understand if actually people have a sauna and they train in the sauna. Because the sauna is super, super hot. But uh, I guess the concept is the same. It definitely works and helps. And it creates an adaptation even in your brain. Because imagine the level of discomfort that you experience in training in that environment, that when you go and training into, even if it's 30 degree, like you might not feel as hot as. So, so it's definitely, this is something that, that people could do and people should think about it because I had a chance to train amateur people, but people, amateur people are very invested, you know, like people, they're training hard all over the year. They are, pre they are preparing the Ironman, the half Ironman, and some of the people invest a lot of money into the training concept, but a lot of them invest a lot of money into preparing the competition. Where do I go? What do I need? It's hot, it's cold. How is the recovery aspect? What time starts the competition? Because this is something people usually don't think about it. You know, we were in uh, Rio and we were, doing, we were preparing for Rio. And of course, we need to think about, uh, okay, where are we doing our competition is in Brazil. The time zone is different. The time at which we do the competition is different. Whereas we must swimming at night. Is at night the good time for our swimmer? No, so you need to change all your training schedule, the day change, because you cannot risk that our athletes that they used to perform better in the morning and afternoon, they're not gonna perform good because that is midnight. No, you need to change the, the, the mental clock. So this is the whole aspect that you need to think about it. And of course, usually the elite athletes think more about this than the amateur, but sometimes I'm pushing this concept even in the amateur and they really appreciate it because it reduces the risk that the competition you're going to go is going to be a failure or you might have some kind of problem in it that basically jeopardize all. So, so like, were you the having, the, were you having the swimmers go at midnight? Like, if the swimmer is in Europe and they're going to swim in Brazil, would you actually have them train, like, in the middle of the night? Yeah, we try to switch the, the training schedule at night, and also we're sending the athletes on the same time zone weeks before to go to Rio. They were training, they were doing, in our case, they were going to United States at the same time zone, and then they were going down to, to Rio. Mm hmm because, uh, I mean, uh, it really it really works. Because at the end of the day, because now the chance to get a medal, of course, uh, in, in general, the chance to win a race, it depends on many factors. And there's a lot of factors that you cannot control, either as a coach or as an athlete. 
So all you can do is trying to exclude as many variables as possible, you know, and then going there with the minimum risk, they, they will fail. This doesn't mean, though, that you're going to maximize. This is probably why there is some countries that they invested a lot of money into the athletes, in particular in the Olympic Games, in this one. Like they do a lot of science base, they have a lot of uh, specialists and consultants around each single athlete, and all they do is minimize the risk and maximize the probability of success. Does, does this give you the, uh, the certainty that you're going to win? No, but definitely increasing the chance you will see that over time it will pay off. Just an example is the Team GB. They invest a lot of money. Probably is the first country in the world that invests so much money. And it apparently works on paper. I see the numbers. It's not bad. Since 1996, when they won only one Olympic medals. Cool. Well, thank you so much yeah, for cool. coming on the show and sharing so much helpful knowledge. And if people have like follow-up <laughs> questions that they want to ask you or they want to get in touch with you, where's a good place to do that? I'm on Twitter uh, with my name and surname, or I'm LinkedIn as well. Okay, and or you can find me on my email. Uh-huh. You know, LinkedIn, yes. Cool. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. That way people can contact you. Like there's a lot of Olympians that listen to this show, so they might actually be contacting you about Tokyo and how to use more cognition training. (laughs) Yeah, sure. No problem. No problem. What did you guys think? I think that it was super awesome and there was a lot of things to learn. I'd love to see what your favorite things are that you learned in today's show. So take a screenshot on your phone and post to social media and type in what your favorite thing you learned from today's show was and share it with your friends. I'm just finishing up a mountain bike stage race in Poland, a six day mountain bike race. And I can't wait to tell you how it goes. So in a couple weeks, we'll be doing a podcast, we meaning Matt and I, who is also racing, and we'll talk about our experience and also a little bit about the culture and the history in both Poland and the Czech Republic. Both are places I've never been before, and people ask me how I select my events, and I pick them based on a couple of things. Number one, I think, is it somewhere cool that I want to go? Number two, I look at the actual race itself and is it going to test my endurance and is the course going to be kind of cool? The answer is yes, then I sign up. There's a lot of fun things happening later this year as well for me. It's definitely action packed. So yeah, we have some fun trips in August with family and for Matt's work. And then in September, September 7th through the 9th is the Toronto Veg Fest, which will have 40,000 people. And I'm speaking there. It's the biggest veg fest in North America. And I'm really excited just to talk about my journey as a plant-based athlete. And it's a massive honor to have the opportunity to speak there. I'm also speaking at another conference at the end of September in Penticton, British Columbia called the Okanagan Health Initiative. And I'll also be speaking about that. And our previous podcast guest, Brenda Davis, who is episode one, and you should definitely go back and listen to that because she's incredible. Um, she's a the world famous plant-based dietitian, and also Dan and Sean Moskaluk, who are also on the podcast guests, whose lives are actually saved from eating a plant-based diet. So they're going to be there as well in Penticton. I also have Interbike in September, and this September, it's in a new location for the first time since I've started riding bikes. It's going to be in Reno, Nevada. So it's going to be pretty cool to go somewhere different and check it out. And I always love Interbike because it's such a community thing. There's so many people, so many brands, and it's just coming together because we spend so much time working hard and traveling, and it's just awesome whenever everybody's in one place. 
I have a lot of super exciting podcast guests who I'm lining up for the next few months as well. I am surprised that some of them said yes, and it's a really big deal for me, so I'm pretty excited. So make sure that you subscribe to the show and stay tuned for that because you don't want to miss who is coming up later this year. And last, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes amazing mushroom products, so mushroom products that help with energy, stamina, athletic performance. It's amazing. And they even make them for Keurig machines, as I've just seen. So I don't have a Keurig machine, but a lot of the places that I travel do. So I'm thinking about adding that to my travel bag, along with some of the teas that I've been taking with me whenever I go. I actually brought some Four Sigmatic products with me to Europe for the Poland stage race. I brought some of the coffees and I brought some of the elixirs for the airplane and to try and help with jet lag. It's pretty cool to have this in my back pocket as an additional boost. If you really want to double up your superfood punch, get the mushroom matcha with lion's mane. The matcha tea, we all love that. I actually had some authentic matcha tea made in Japan when I was there back in May, and that was a really cool experience. Matcha is a very high antioxidant blend of green tea, and if you can add lion's mane to that, you're going to have the most amazing concentration ever. That's what lion's mane is made for. So check out Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com slash Sonia. Get a 15% off in order using my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout. And I would absolutely love to hear what you think of this product. I only want to be having podcast sponsors on this show that are making a difference for you guys. And I only put products on here that I actually use and believe in, much like my athlete sponsorships. So I'm really excited to tell you guys about these guys and just would love to hear what you think as well after you've tried them. Super. All right. Well, wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And if your adventures are in Poland or even if they're in your backyard and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>